0: This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Brilliant Earth. Brilliant Earth is a global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. Create your own custom engagement ring or choose from the unique designs made by master jewelers. And enjoy free shipping on all U.S. orders. From now until February 3rd, you'll receive a complimentary pair of diamond studs with the purchase of an engagement ring. To see the terms of this special offer and to shop all of Brilliant Earth's selections, go to brilliantearth.com manliness. One more time, brilliantearth.com manliness. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. People often complain about being tired and out these days from work and family responsibilities. We think it's because of the way technology has sped up the pace of life and the way we're always on and figure we're living in the most exhausting age in history. But are we really? My guest argues that no, people have been complaining about being tired since at least antiquity. Her name is Anna Schaffner, and she's written a book called Exhaustion, A History, which traces the fascinating evolution of physical, psychological, and existential fatigue from the ancient Greeks to the modern day. Today, she takes us on this tour. And as we move from age to age, we dig into how exhaustion has changed as to how it's described, whether we blame external or internal factors as its source, and how much we believe personal agency can control it. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash exhaustion. Anna joins me now via Skype. All right, Anna Katharina Schaffner, welcome to the show
1: hi welcome thank you for having me on your program
0: so you wrote a book called exhaustion a history i'm curious this is a an interesting topic to delve into the history of exhaustion so what got you looking into that were you just really tired one day and you were thinking did the ancient greeks like complain about being tired of being tired too and i'm going to explore that so what happened there
1: yeah, it was it wasn't quite like that, but it was similar. I did often, you know, feel very exhausted and tired and and weary and overburdened, you know, as Academics tend to (laughs) at numerous times in their lives. And I also noticed a really interesting increase in newspaper reports and television programs and scholarly studies on stress and burnout, especially in Germany. The Germans were really, really obsessed with that topic a couple of years ago. And everybody basically said that we've never, ever been that exhausted collectively, that we're living the most exhausting age ever. And that basically, you know, everything about our time was sucking out our energies and that we're we're confronted with this really demanding environment in which we constantly have to be cognitively switched on. And new technologies basically mean that we can never properly switch off. And also, you know, neoliberal working arrangements were, you know, psychosocially really, really stressful. So everybody was making these big grand claims about our utterly exhausted and exhausting age. And then I did think, yeah, I mean, I agree with that, but I do wonder really whether exhaustion as a sort of mental and physical state is is unique to our age. And then I thought I'd I'd look into it. I was really interested. And then I really did find that exhaustion is really a, a topic that has concerned people throughout the centuries. And it is not, as we might think, related to new technologies. It is not related to the sort of hyper-competitive neoliberal environment, but it's really a ubiquitous and timeless concern. And I think, you know, I don't deny that we're living in a stressful age and that there are numerous new psychosocial challenges that are very unique and specific to our times. But I did find that every age has sort of struggled with its own burden and its own challenges. And every age has also perceived itself as exhausting. And a lot of people before us have have actually made similar claims as to, you know, how suddenly everything was terrible and they look back nostalgically to to the past, imagining the past as much more, much more kind of peaceful, less stressful. So you have this sort of, nostalgic glorification of the past as a you know as an age in which the stressors were fewer and that happens in in lots of different periods not just in hours and and basically, I, I was really fascinated with that because that's not how most people perceive it. And I did also find that quite soothing as an idea, you know, that we're not the only age that has struggled with the problem of exhaustion.
0: So yeah, this was, I, I thought it was soothing too. It's like, well, you know, people thousands of years ago also were tired, just like, like, like I am. So let's talk about that. When was the first time we see in you know, recorded human record of people complaining about being tired or exhaustion.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, that really, you know, my my investigation, my research took me all the way back to the age of classical antiquity. And you really do find it in some of the epics. You find it also in, in Galen's writing, you know, this uh, great doctor who, who basically established Humoral medicine, and and he he was looking at exhaustion in the context of melancholia, because basically exhaustion you never really encounter it purely on its own in the uh, literature of the past, in the medical text or in the theological text or in the philosophical text. What I did is I looked at different syndromes that entailed exhaustion as a core symptom. So I looked at texts on melancholia. I looked at uh, texts on neurasthenia, on nervous weakness, on depression, on chronic fatigue syndrome, and on, on burnout. And exhaustion is always central to these syndromes, but it's not the same, of course, because in those syndromes, it is always combined with other symptoms. And sometimes these symptoms are thought to be the cause of exhaustion is is the the cause of these other symptoms. And sometimes exhaustion is is thought to be one of the consequences of them. So it's always really interesting. And one of the earliest writing, coming back to your question about exhaustion, is, is really in the sort of humoral medical texts on melancholia. And humoral medicine is really based on the idea that we have four humors that need to be in balance with one another, and all illnesses, all distress, all forms of discomfort can be explained with recourse to imbalance. So Galen thought that exhaustion, and mainly in the form of torpor, lethargy, weariness, and, and pessimism, is one of the core symptoms of melancholia. And he had a lot to write about exhaustion in the sense that he thought it was called caused by a surplus of black bile and he had also this very lovely image of um how we how we kind of how black moods and um you know pessimistic worldviews happen he he basically thought that when the body is confronted with too much black bile it starts to burn the excess of black bile and the fumes of black bile they sort of rise up into our head and literally cloud our vision you know they make us see everything through a dark through a glass darkly. So so Galen was one of the very first to, to write about exhaustion, and he had this interesting idea that it was Partly physical, you know, this idea that it was because of an imbalance of of the humors and an excess of black bile, but that this physical imbalance obviously had effects on on our on people's mental life. So it, it really manifested itself as as a lack of energy, but also as a mood disorder, so to say.
0: Well, yeah, that's an interesting point because that's something that I noticed throughout the book is. As you go through the different stages of civilization and how they approached exhaustion, there was this, I don't know, a tension between whether exhaustion or depression or whatever you want to call it is physiological, right? It's in the body or if it's psychological, it's just in the mind or spiritual. So it sounds like Galen was saying it was a little bit of both at the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, he, he thought it was originally physical, but then had psychological impacts. And what is really interesting is how that relationship between the physical, the mental and the social shifts in the different theories of exhaustion. And basically, in my book, I look at forms of exhaustion that constitute physical and mental states and that are all also at the same time broader cultural phenomena. So physically, exhaustion really manifests itself as fatigue, lethargy, and weakness and it can be a temporary state, and those aren't particularly scary because they they pass. Or they can, or, or that kind of state of exhaustion can be a chronic condition. And in my book, I really look at the pathological forms of exhaustion, and those that are not obviously the result of an underlying and clearly diagnosable medical condition. And emotionally, exhaustion can, can be described as, as weariness, disillusionment, apathy, and hopelessness, or a lack of motivation. And what I find really fascinating that, that is that throughout the ages, the different theories always theorize the relationship between the mind, the body, and the social very, very differently. And that was, for me, the attraction about that topic, because... You know the ways in which we think about the interconnection between the mind, the body, and the social is really, really interesting, and it also tells us a lot about other assumptions about you know selfhood and you know how connected we are, and also you know the kind of whole idea, the Cartesian idea of a split between the mind and the body is obviously a later phenomenon, and most of the earlier texts and theories are much more holistic, and they they assume that there's a sort of intricate connection between the mind and the body. And and they try to sort of theorize that connection in very interesting ways.
0: And also, so there's this this tension between mind and body, but there's also, you see throughout the history, and we see even with the ancient and classical antiquity, whether exhaustion is a sign of weakness Right like a moral failing or if it's just something that just happens to you and you're not you're you're pretty much blameless for it and that changes but before we see how it changes, like what did like say the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans think of exhaustion was it seen as a as a moral failing or a moral weakness of some sort or was it just something like well yeah that just happens to you and that's okay
1: yeah, I think it wasn't seen as a moral failing and it was also not considered as weakness as such it was something that started out in the body. And I mean, they did believe that you could cure exhaustion and melancholic states by paying attention to to diet, by living a very moderate lifestyle, you know, avoiding excesses of all sorts. So there was a sort of, there was an idea that our behavior contributes to, to our exhaustion if we're not careful, if we you know eat the wrong kinds of food if we indulge in you know activities that are not not restful if we don't pay attention to to our energy levels that we are partly responsible for, for suffering from exhaustion and, and states of exhaustion. But the other interesting thing about melancholia, because you know, melancholia was the big sort of exhaustion syndrome in that period, was that melancholia also had a vaguely positive connections back then already, because Aristotle actually connected melancholia and the melancholic temperament with genius. So being melancholic wasn't just seen as something negative. There was also this, you know... Connection with scholarship and with creativity and with you know intellectual powers, but but overall I would say exhaustion in in the um, Greco-Roman period wasn't vilified. It wasn't considered sinful. It wasn't considered. A weakness, it was rather about sort of temperament and physical responses that we can influence by watching our behavior. But it didn't have these sort of excessive moralistic connotations that came with later diagnoses.
0: And so, yeah, let's talk about that change. That started changing in the Middle Ages with Christianity.
1: Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's for me probably the most interesting theory of exhaustion, the idea that exhaustion is sinful. And medieval exhaustion was actually really present in a syndrome cluster that is called Akedia, and that was later renamed as Sloth. So Echidia really was born amongst hermit monks in the Egyptian desert, and early theorists, including Evagrius Ponticus and Johannes Cassian, who who lived in the Egyptian desert, um, blamed uh, exhaustion on the noonday demon. And Echidia is really a very interesting phenomenon. It's a mixture of melancholia and sloth, and it was thought to be manifest in listlessness, apathy, and lack of care. And it was originally diagnosed exclusively in monastic environments, but then it became sort of more ubiquitous and became democratized, and everyone was able to suffer from Achidia. And Achidia has also very poetically been described as weariness of the heart. And the 13th century Italian theologian Thomas Aquinas was the first to very, very explicitly define Achidia as a spiritual sin. And I think. That was a really interesting turn in the history of exhaustion, because he thought exhaustion was a failure of morality, and it was owing to a lack of proper faith. So basically, the exhausted, the lethargic, the lukewarm, the weary were guilty of refusing to accept divine grace. They were basically guilty of a bad mental attitude. And in fact, very few people know that Akedia or sloth was considered the most dangerous of the seven deadly sins and it was the most dangerous because it it basically breeds all the other bad behaviors and the other sinful forms of acting because because it can all be traced back to this lack of faith in god's goodness this sort of you know dismissive attitude about what is good and what is important and what is divine. And the underlying idea was also, of course, that by giving in to exhaustion, we we are guilty because because we we are weak, our flesh is weak, our mental state is weak, and we let the sort of evil forces from the outside take over because we're not vigilant enough and we we don't have enough faith to, to fend off you know, the noonday demon, for example. And of course, that has implications for responsibility and agency. I mean, one of the other interesting things about exhaustion is that it always brings up bigger philosophical questions about personal responsibility and agency. And in the Middle Ages, really the the slothful and the eclectic and the you know weary and lethargic were thought of as sinners.
0: So it was interesting you talk about. Talking about Italian Italians in the medieval times is a uh, Dante, and his Divine Comedy. Like exhaustion was front and center in that. What did what can the Divine Comedy teach us about how people living in that period thought you could overcome the sin of achidia?
1: Yeah, I I when I reread the Divine Comedy, I was really struck by how you know it can really be read as a book that traces the gradual overcoming of weariness, of spiritual and physical weariness. And there are lots and lots of reference to sleepiness, to lethargy, to tiredness, to heaviness. And and Dante, you know, he sheds all his sins on the way to paradise. So he, he you know, he's lost spiritually and, and literally at the beginning of the Divine Comedy. And then he meets his guide who, you know, basically guides him through the Inferno and to Purgatory, and in the end, he, you know, he's reunited with his beautiful Beatrice in Paradise. And in the course of his journey, he becomes more and more energetic, and he shakes off this torpor, this lethargy. And it becomes very clear that exhaustion, and in the form of achidia. And slothfulness has been his major sin. And he, he encounters lots of other slothful characters in the course of his journey, all of whom get punished. You know, there's this sort of law of contrapasso at work in, in the Divine Comedy, this idea that all the sins are punished by tortures that either resemble or contrast with the sin in question. So some of the weary and slothful characters are forced into eternal activity. And the lukewarm, who never really wanted to commit to, you know, to God's goodness or to to good causes, they're forced endlessly to run after empty banners, for example, which is a very beautiful image, I think. And then, of course, Dante also encounters the, the wonderful figure of Belacqua, who, you know, who sits really tired and lethargic and weary at the bottom of Mount Purgatory, And if he were able to climb up to the summit of Mount Purgatory, he could really find salvation there. But ironically, he's just too tired to make that climb and he can't be bothered. And he doesn't really believe that, you know, he would succeed in being forgiven for his sins so he just sits there at the bottom of mount purgatory with his you know bowed his, with his head bowed and you know leaning against a boulder in the shade this wonderful image of someone who has really given up on the idea of salvation but not so dante you know who is driven forward by by virgil his guide and who in the end succeed, succeeds in, in shaking off his torpor his spiritual torpor and recommits to god in the end
0: I think it was interesting, you know, you mentioned that the the sin of slothfulness originated in monastic scenarios or environments. When I was reading this, I was actually at the time, I was I stayed in a monastery here in close by to my house, just like an hour away. And one of the things I found was interesting, I got there, like all I wanted to do was sleep. Like the day the day before I was fine, like you know, active, but like I got there. I just got really sleepy. I just wanted. I, I wonder if it's something about the monastic way of life that it, it is so regular and it is so. I don't know. It is kind of relaxing. That just makes you makes you tired. It makes you want to sleep. I don't know what was going on there.
1: Yeah, I kind of mentioned that. You know, if you have very kind of regular routines, and also you know they have to they had to meditate a lot. The monks in the past, you know, they especially the hermits. They were by themselves all day long every day, and and they had to be really really Disciplined about their kind of spiritual commitments and the meditation aspect of it, and of course that can be really, really hard, and 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 can cause incredible problems with with concentration. And there's some wonderful descriptions of weary monks in, in some of the texts I've studied, you know, monks who basically engage in all sorts of very modern sounding displacement activities. You know, they go out and they stare at the sun and they become really sleepy and then they go and see another monk and idly chat for hours and then they feel really tired again. And, you know, there are all these descriptions of monks who don't quite manage to commit to that, you know, very rigorous discipline that was required. And then, of course, I think what what also becomes interesting is that in a monastic setting, you know, because because the um, sort of hermitages, the, the the hermit monks, they were obviously all living separately in in their own little. I'm not entirely sure how cells sells in, in the yeah. desert, yeah. But then when, when Christianity became more more broadly organized around monasteries, the lazy monk became a big social problem, you know, because, because monasteries depend on everybody chipping in, everybody doing their job, everybody contributing to the community and and the one lazy monk could cause a lot of resentment <laughs> I mean, that's, you know as is still the case nowadays
0: all right so during the medieval time middle ages exhaustion was seen as a spiritual it's a weakness of the will as we shift into the renaissance though again we see exhaustion changing so how did it change during the renaissance
1: yeah i actually studied a really interesting text by a 15th century humanist called massilio Ficino he he wrote a text that is called three books on life and Ficino was a neoplatonist and was very very interested in in occult theories he was into alchemy and he was into um you know, astronomy, astrology, all of these um, slightly more <laughs> obscure sciences. And he profoundly believed in, in the sort of microcosm, macrocosm connection. And his main cure for exhaustion was really the idea that we need to realign our patterns of behavior with the movements of the planets. So he believed that exhaustion, in again in the form of melancholia, was caused by the planet saturn and that you know saturn really really ha- held sway over the melancholic temperaments and that basically people with a melancholic temperament needed to do quite a lot to to counteract the influence of saturn and he came up with fantastically obscure recipes for <laughs> for what the melancholics should should do and he also recommended which is one of my favorite cures for exhaustion: Orphic dancing. And Orphic dancing is all about realigning your energy with the energy of the planet. So he recommended that we we imitate the movement of the planets by moving our body in a certain way. So so reading uh, Ficino is is actually very entertaining <laughs> nowadays. And
0: one of the things, So it sounds like here, instead of seeing as exhaustion as the source, being the, the individual being the source of exhaustion, like the planets it was like an outside source that caused you to be really tired.
1: yeah, I think that's another you know that's another really interesting factor in the hist- history of exhaustion where responsibility shifts from inner sources to outer sources. You know sometimes they can be environmental like the planets, and very often they can be very specific socio-political developments as we will see um, later on. Um, So, for example, in the 19th century, when theorists began to talk about nerves, weak nerves and nerve force and a lack of nerve force, and um, and they started to think of exhaustion as basically being caused by a lack of nervous energy, a lack of nerve power, lack of nerve force. And they very, very explicitly blamed this lack of nerve force on the modern urban environment, and that was, you know, the, the sort of first very clear cut um, reassignment of responsibility to something that is outside of our control. You know, basically the theories of um, uh, the theorists of nervous exhaustion were all saying that we are victims of socio-political developments and technological developments. Most famous amongst these was, of course, the American physician George N. Beard, who coined the neurasthenia diagnosis in 1880. So he, he invented this new diagnostic cluster, neurasthenia, which included all sorts of things. I mean, it's absurdly long and absurdly, you know, wide ranging and it's no longer in in use because it basically included far too many symptoms. So it became very kind of baggy as a concept. But what is interesting about neurasthenia was that it was very clearly saying that the main cause of nervous exhaustion is to be found in the modern urban environment. Um, And the idea was that the modern urban environment assaults the highly sensitive nervous system of modern men and women with an incessant stream of stimuli. So, you know, Beard was worried about speed. He was worried about noise. He was worried about the telegraph. He was worried about all sorts of technological developments and how they basically kind of Overstimulate our cognitive systems. But Beard was also very clever because he associated neurasthenia with a whole range of very positive connotations as well, because he said, only the very sensitive types actually suffer from neurasthenia. So everybody, of course, wants to be sensitive and cultured and civilized. And that was one of the reasons for for why neurasthenia became a very, very fashionable disease. It actually spread like a wildfire. Everybody wanted to be neurasthenic because being neurasthenic meant you were sensitive, you were in touch with your emotions, you weren't crude, you were highly civilized, you were sophisticated. And he also said, neurasthenia mainly affects captains of industry and brain workers.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> well yeah, I think that's interesting because you see that also, like going back to Aristotle, right? Being a melancholic, tired guy—well, it's a sign of genius. The Renaissance had that same idea. The Romantics, as well, in the the nineteenth century, if you were, you know, had a depressive outlook on life, well, it meant you were you were poetic. Right. And it became fashionable to do that. And you see that also with neurasthenia. What's interesting too is not only how we think about exhaustion changes, but like the metaphors we use to talk about exhaustion. So, like in the 19th century, you mentioned that people started talking about nerve force or nerve power. Well, like, like electricity was invented in the 19th century or thereabouts, like, you know, people started having it in their homes. So, that, that they started using that as a way to explain exhaustion, right?
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think you know the metaphors of exhaustion are really, really crucial because metaphors really matter, especially in the field of medicine, because they they really shape the way we imagine what is happening inside us. So you know, if we imagine our nervous capital as um, comparable to a battery, for example, that has lots of implications. I mean, the battery, the empty battery, was a very, very popular image that Beard used, you know, also in response to the spread of electricity and related technologies. But the empty battery was very, very popular back then as as an image that, you know, sort of captured what happens if we don't manage our nerve force carefully. And, of course, the idea was that batteries are, you know, I think they were non-rechargeable back then. I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, the idea was that nerve force is is finite. It cannot easily be renewed. It's a precious resource. And if we squander it, we will be left with nothing. So another very popular metaphor cluster that was used a lot in the 19th century was was revolving around economic imagery. So the idea that we have um you know that, that we have an account and we have to manage it wisely. So we have to manage our nervous energy just as wisely as we would manage our financial assets because if we squander it all at once it's gone and we're bankrupt. So, you know, um I think he, George Beard even uses the the term nervous bankruptcy at some point and he often makes these economic comparisons which again you know implies agency that you know although he blames exhaustion mainly on the modern environment there's always a dimension of agency involved because otherwise if we had no agency we couldn't Defend ourselves against exhaustion. You know, we can't just be victims in this. There has to be something we can do about it. So he's very much in favor of managing our nervous energy very cautiously, very wisely, very, very astutely. And other really interesting images that that the medieval theorists used. One of my favorites is really the idea of the tepid bowl of milk on which flies settle. <laughs> <But> <laughs> That is, um, a sort of. I think it's from the 11th century, if I remember correctly. And this is the idea that, you know, if we let our spiritual essence go sour, <laughs> we will attract demonic and, and disgusting outside forces. And I think it's a very powerful image. The tepid bowl of milk on which flies settle. And of course, other really interesting and important metaphors are related to, I mean, modern day ones would be related to the mind as a computer. And, and that has lots of implications as well. Imagining the mind as a computer is very reductive I think, very worrying because, you know, it just entails that we can reprogram our, our cognitive structures and we can get rid of unwanted data and we can delete and, you know, reload and we can recharge and reprogram And we can basically get rid of everything we don't like. But I think it really doesn't capture the human animal as as a very kind of irrational creature. We're not just rational and we can't just be easily reprogrammed, you know, and we're not robots. But I think the idea of um, the mind as a computer, and that's very popular in, in the sort of modern burnout literature, is, is, is quite a dangerous one because it really dismisses everything that makes us human.
0: <laughs> We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. All right, so here at The Art of Manliness, we run a pretty lean ship. There's only three of us full time. And in order to get more done while maintaining this lean crew, I've had to rely on various pieces of business software. Now, to find those pieces of business software to solve these problems I've encountered over the years, it's always a pain. Because you go to Google, you do searches, you never really find anything useful. And even if you find something, you're not really sure the, the information you get is you know is pertinent to you. That's changed with captivity. Capterra Capterra is leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. With over 700,000 reviews of products from real software users, it has everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 specific categories of software, everything from project management to email marketing to barbershop management software. Uh, You name it, they've got it. No matter what kind of software your business needs, Capterra makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. Join the millions of people who use Capterra each month to find the right tools for their business. I've been using Capterra to find software to help me manage the strenuous life. It's a big, big platform, big program with lots of moving pieces. So I've been able to use that to find software and hone down to help me manage that better. If you'd like to try this, got a special offer for you. Visit capterra.com slash manly for free today to find the tools to make 2019 the year for your business. Again, capterra.com slash manly. Capterra, that's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A.com slash manly. Also by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you put into action all the things we've been writing about and talking about on the Art of Manliness podcast for the past 10 years. We've done that in a few ways. First, we created over 50 different badges based around 50 different skills, everything from wilderness survival, first aid, self-defense, to personal finance, social skills, entrepreneurship, even how to be a better family man. So we're providing some structure to your self-improvement goals. We've also provided tools for accountability for your physical fitness and your character development. And at The Strenuous Life, we've provided ways for you to plan meetups and get together with other TSL members in your area so you can work on this stuff face-to-face in person because we're big proponents of in-person social interaction here at The Art of Manliness. So if you'd like to learn more about The Strenuous Life, head over to strenuouslife.co. And while you're there, make sure to sign up your email address on our waiting list so you can be one of the first to know when our next enrollment opens up. So strenuouslife.co can learn all about it there, any questions you might have, and then also make sure to get your email on our waiting list so you can be one of the first to sign up. strenuouslife.co. And now, back to the show. well, no, yeah, i've I think I've seen devices you can buy. I don't know if it exists anymore. It was out there. I've never seen a viral article about it. It's this little device you kind of stick to your forehead and then it sends like electric pulses into your brain, and it can somehow energize you or like make you calm. So like it's that idea, like, okay, oh, yeah, you can just reprogram your brain like it's, some sort of digital device with electrical yeah. current.
1: Yeah, interestingly, George M. Beard, the inventor of the neurasthenia diagnosis, he used electrotherapy for the exhausted, and that was one of his, uh, you know, therapeutic um, suggestions, like mild electric shocks.
0: Yeah, and so besides the electrotherapy, there was also hydrotherapy.
1: Yeah, kind of- hydrotherapy was another popular. You know, cure for exhaustion. In fact, the cures that were proposed for exhaustion are also really interesting in themselves. So, taking the waters was very, very popular in 19th century Britain. So, Darwin, for example, also suffered from exhaustion and he often took the waters. So, he, he indulged in water cures at numerous times in his life. And he was also very cautious about managing his energy. So, he would always have very rigorous periods of activity and periods of rest periods of activity, periods of rest. So, reading his letters, it's very fascinating because he was really extremist about the way he organized his leisure time and his work time for example yeah and then there are you know more more obscure suggestions for for curing exhaustion you know lots of potions lots of strange alchemical uh, mixtures and of course in in the middle ages i think the, the that was probably the cruelest cure because the cure was just more work more spiritual exercise. So, you know, those who were exhausted by their spiritual duties were just told to focus even harder on their spiritual duties or to work even harder. So, that was, of course, a vicious circle.
0: So, in the late 19th century, exhaustion was seen as neurasthenia. And exhaustion is one of the symptoms of neurasthenia. There's a whole bunch of other symptoms that are associated with it. But then, as you notice, as you note in the book, in the 20th century, like neurasthenia almost disappeared. <laughs> Like after World War One, um, what happened? And like, or did it just exhaustion change the way it was described or talked
1: about? Yeah, I think I think what always happens is that you know certain diagnoses they run their course and um, new ones emerge. I mean, we can even see that nowadays, you know, where the DSM constantly comes up with new diagnosis and gets rid of older ones and so on. So there's always an attempt to, you know, to redesign, refashion our diagnostic tools in order to capture what is bothering us (laughs) in more, you know, modern, more, you know, accurate terms. And I think that is true of exhaustion as well. But one of the reasons why neurasthenia disappeared from the scene was that, I mean, also the gender politics of exhaustion are very interesting. So neurasthenia was associated with women and the rest cure was often proposed for neurasthenic women and charlotte um, perkins gilman wrote a very famous story about that um, the yellow wallpaper and then the kind of gender politics of, of exhaustion changed in that quite a lot of sensitive men began to self-identify as neurasthenics quite a lot of artists quite a lot of writers and It was very fashionable to, to be neurasthenic for a long time you know most most of the you know turn of the century writers would would self-identify as neurasthenic because it was just en vogue to do so. But then there was a shift, and neurasthenia was beginning to 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 be, and people felt it was too baggy to lose a diagnosis, and it was also associated with shirkedom. You know, obviously during the second during the first world War and after, there was much less tolerance for for you know suffering of the soul, but it, because it all became um very, very kind of physically orientated, outwards oriented. And of course, Freud had entered the scene by then. And Freud really shifted the discourse and um, very dramatically. and he came up with some, very revolutionary ideas about exhaustion. So Freud, obviously, he came up with three core ideas. So he did say that It's very exhausting constantly having to repress our desires because we have to do that because we live in, you know, in a society that depends on individuals repressing their selfish desires. But repressing those desires makes us neurotic because, you know, they have to somehow the forbidden wants out and and it becomes manifest in neuroses, for example, and it also becomes manifest in sublimation, of course, but it doesn't always work. And then we can end up suffering from from exhaustion as a result. But his more interesting theories about exhaustion concerned, of course, his sort of meta-psychological idea of the death drive. So he famously argued that there's a life drive, you know, that is is responsible for us striving, for us wanting to procreate, for us wanting to be active and do things. And he also said that this drive is countered by its opposite drive, the death drive. And the death drive wants to return us to a state of passivity, a state of inertia, an inorganic state. It wants to return us to basically a state before individuation, before we we became separate, before we became, you know, individuals. And he argues that both drives are conservative, and they battle against one another, which is quite exhausting because you have these conflicting drives that are operative within us. And also sometimes the death drive takes over and it it takes us into a lethargic state where we want to avoid all activity, all novelty, all challenge, where we just want to basically return to a state where nothing disturbs our peace, you know, where we seek a sort of fake kind of nirvana by avoiding anything that might be upsetting or challenging or or threatening. Um, you know, and, and you can still say about certain people, oh, they're very death-driven, you know, in the sense that they 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 have become extremely passive. And um, averse to, to challenges and averse to, to, to anything that is, is associated with life and novelty. And, of course, Freud also came up with the idea of conflict inside us um, that can eat up all our energy, that can use up all of our... Power in internal battles. So he famously sort of theorized the id, the ego, and the superego as psychological instances. And he also argued that they can do battle with one another, you know, that the id and the ego and the ego and the superego can be in conflict. And that takes up a lot of energy. Uh, energy that you know is is then wasted and cannot be invested in into any interactions with the outside world so so this i uh, i think this idea of of internal conflict eating up our energy is also quite interesting and then he also talked about melancholia and the idea that losing a love object can often result in us losing a, a stable sense of self and it's a very complicated process of substitution but it can happen that we we become so eaten up by loss that this kind of obsession with loss has an effect on our sense of self and when we've lost our sense of self we can we can basically no longer properly interact with the outside world because we have used up our energy in 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 psychological conflict operations
0: all right. So yeah, Freud changed the game big time. He added to the idea that exhaustion can come from within based on all, based on all these conflicts. And I can see that happening, right? Because like, you know, Freud changed the way we thought about ourselves, right? Or talk about ourselves. And I can see people being like, yeah, I'm just, I got to think, I got to sort out this problem, this internal problem. They, And before th- Freud, they would never have thought of it. But now that Freud says, oh, it's there. And you're like, okay, maybe it is there. This is one more thing I have to think about. That makes me tired, <laughs> so we're just adding to it.
1: Yeah, but it's, i mean, it's—you can really see that at work. I think in everyday life, when you know, when people are really preoccupied with their own problems to such an extent that they really cannot give to anybody else, or to outside activities. I still find it a very convincing narrative, personally.
0: So let's talk about recent developments in the history of fatigue and exhaustion because it's been controversial. In the 80s, we start seeing people talking about chronic fatigue syndrome. For those who aren't familiar with this, like what, what is chronic fatigue syndrome? Like what does it feel like To have chronic fatigue syndrome do we know what causes it etc
1: yeah i mean chronic fatigue syndrome is of the different exhaustion syndromes i discuss in my book it's by far the most controversial one and it is in terms of symptoms it is similar to some of the others similar to neurasthenia similar um there's overlap with um with some of the older ones as well. But basically, ME or chronic fatigue syndrome um, means that that people who who are afflicted by these syndromes suffer from mental and physical fatigue and also post-exertion malaise and a sense of extreme effort that renders many everyday activities impossible. And it also entails difficulties with concentrating cognitive tasks and short-term memory. And it is a It is a highly controversial diagnosis because there were quite a few people, especially in the 80s, who were very unsympathetic to people who suffered from CFS or ME, as it is also known. And there are some differences between the two, but often people talk about ME slash CFS, ME slash chronic fatigue syndrome. And I think what happened in the 80s was that there was a very, very unsympathetic reaction in the press. People talked about yuppie flu and basically said it was a sham condition and that it was all in the sufferers heads. And the problem is that nowadays the the discussion about uh, CFS and ME is very, very polarized. Um, A lot of uh, CFS and ME sufferers feel very strongly that theirs is a purely biological condition, a purely physical condition. And then there are some People who argue that there might be a psychological dimension to this illness... Nobody is saying that this is just in sufferers' heads. Um, I think that you know, very c- crude and horrible attitude has become unacceptable. But there are some people, s- some psychiatrists and some medical researchers who, who say, yes, there is some physiological cause to that illness, but then there may be a psychosomatic or a behavioral dimension to recovery from, from the physiological. Um, issue Now, that the, the problem with CFS and ME is that it, it has become a very acrimonious debate in that sufferers feel terribly misunderstood and misrepresented by the press in particular, but also by certain um, medical researchers. And they, they react very, very strongly to any suggestions that there may be a psychosomatic dimension to the recovery process, for example, or to the illness as such. I haven't taken a position on this in my book because I'm not a medical expert and I really couldn't make an, a judgment on what is the true narrative here. I've simply presented the two Arguments. I've presented the viewpoint of a sufferer and I've presented the viewpoint of a, a psychiatrist who argues that there is a behavioral and psychological dimension to the illness, although this uh, psychiatrist also never, ever says that it's all in sufferers' heads. However, I've been attacked uh, horribly for, for my chapter on CFS and ME. By, by some sufferers who, who hate it when you even mention the other viewpoint. As I said, I haven't actually made a judgment call. How could I? I think, I think it is likely that there might be a biological cause for ME and CFS that hasn't yet been found. I very much hope that is the case because that would mean that you know, sufferers um, – could be cured once that um, cause can be identified. At the same time, I think it's it's not in any way shameful to say that there is some psychological dimension to some of our conditions. I mean, I would always readily admit that, that my health is affected by my psychological state of mind. You know, when I'm stressed and anxious, my immune system is lower and I'm I'm more likely to get ill. So I don't think it's it's a horrible thing to say that some of our illnesses may have a psychological dimension you know not as an exclusive um, cause but as a contributing factor but i think because me and cfs patients have been treated so horribly by the press the the debate has become very very polarized
0: yeah i think what it also does too is it it sh- brings it shows very acutely that tension between physiological and psychological. So if it's physiological we tend to think we we don't blame people as much. If it's psychological we think, well, just get it together, you're responsible for that. But maybe that's the the not we shouldn't have that approach even to psychological issues.
1: Yeah, of course not. You know, and I think I find it surprising because you know, people who suffer from depression, they would not you know, they would not be stigmatized. I mean, they still are in, in certain, um, you know, in, in certain unfortunate scenarios. There is still a stigma that comes with mental health, but there shouldn't be, of course. And, you know, and depression also has some biological causes. And I think it's it's in most cases, um, we have a both and scenario, not a neither nor or either or scenario.
0: So chronic fatigue syndrome, the latest development in or one of the latest developments in how we uh, experience exhaustion, describe it. But let's talk about the thing that got you thinking about this was all those articles that were going on in Germany about burnout. Because if you live in America too, we see those articles as well, that burnout is on the rise. So let's first talk about how do we, when we talk about burnout, what are we describing? How is it different from exhaustion in the past? Is it the same? Can you kind of walk us through that?
1: Yeah. So burnout is the latest exhaustion um, syndrome and burnout is really very, very popular topic of conversation in, especially in the non-Anglo American countries. I don't know whether a lot of people talk about burnout in in the US. But I would say in in the UK, the discussion tends to revolve around stress, which is much more about personal resilience and personal work-life balance management. But burnout, in the way it is discussed in Germany, for example, and also in some of the Scandinavian countries, has a, a dimension that we haven't seen so far. And that is, it, it, it includes social structures. It, it includes the idea of working environments that can make us ill. And that's something quite new in the discussion. So uh, burnout is, has been defined as basically a, a reaction to, to too much work stress. And the idea is that burnout entails, entails three components, and that is exhaustion, that is an inability to perform one's job, and it is also a cynical attitude towards the people with whom one works. And I think that last dimension has to be explained because originally the burnout diagnosis emerged in the 1970s in America. In the context of care workers, so the idea was really that people who are in care, in the caring professions, so teachers, social workers, nurses, and so on, tend to at some point become very disillusioned because they invest so much emotional energy in their work, and then often they don't get enough back, or else they work in a in an environment that you know really exploits them, and that um, means that they cannot continue to give quite that much emotional energy. And and then in the 1980s and 90s, the diagnosis of burnout became democratized again and expanded to encompass all kinds of work. And ultimately, burnout is is a chronic state of stress, but it is more specific than depression in that it relates particularly and very specifically to one's working environment. Now, a lot of people are happier to diagnose self diagnose as burned out rather than depressed because depression is still very clearly a mental health issue, whilst burnout can be actually turned into something. Positive, you know, like neurasthenia in its early days, because you can only burn out if you give too much, if you work too hard. And working too hard is of course something that is validated in our society that has very, very positive connotations. So, in a way, you you will find that um, people, you know, top managers and so on, might be quite happy to self-diagnose as burned out, because in a way it's almost a badge of honor. You have worked so hard, you've given so much, you've given so much more than you actually have that you now need to rest so that you now have to earn your, you know, your your right to, to, to rest and to take a break.
0: So there we go again, exhaustion being a status symbol again. What I think is interesting too, is you see throughout human history with how we deal with exhaustion, like the cures like they're pretty much the same like even the day when we say I'm tired I'm not talking about you know chronic fatigue syndrome but just say you're just burnt out you're feeling exhausted or you're stressed out like what we do we do like okay eat better food get more sleep we might we even have we do things like hydrate people are taking cold showers or they're doing saunas or what are those pods the um where you sit in and you the float tanks yeah um, yeah <laughs> right or mindfulness I'm going to meditate it's. I mean, it's different, but it is the same thing that you know Galen was doing basically two thousand years ago.
1: Absolutely, it's a, all about restoring some kind of balance, you know. But I think what is also really interesting is that burnout can be read in two ways, and I find that in Germany and in some Scandinavian countries, it has a, it has a more overtly political dimension because basically people expect the state to step in. And to protect workers against hostile working environments, so so there's an expectation that that somehow um, legislation will be changed in order to avoid these kind of epidemics of burnout amongst um, the workforce, and so so there is a very kind of specifically political spin to the burnout argument as well in the. And sociological arguments, uh, in particular, you know, which is which concern the, um, you know, the the terrible neoliberal working environment in which we are expected to give permanently, in which we are expected to, you know, engage with our full being emotionally, cognitively, um, creatively, and of course, the boundaries between between work and leisure are const- constantly being eroded, and we have to be reachable, you know, 24/7. And so on. So, so in, in Germany, for example, quite a lot of companies have put into place measures to prevent staff burnout. For example, you know, saying it's it's not possible to send work emails after 7 p.m. So you know, some companies have even manipulated their, their company emails accounts to such an extent that you cannot send after our emails, you cannot send or receive them. Or if you go on holidays, your email your emails will bounce back so that you can actually really properly relax on holidays and you won't come back to a mountain of unanswered email. So, for example, my brother works at Mercedes and, and they have this wonderful, you know, bounce back holiday email system in operation. And, you know, everyone who's on holiday, they, they basically send an automatic message that says, I'm on holiday. If your concern is still of importance after two weeks, please get back to me, but everything bounces back. And so that's just one example of how, how basically it brings us back to the question of responsibility you know, and in a lot of burnout discussions, responsibility is, is moved away from the individual and is is basically placed in the court of the state and, and people or the company for which one works. So there is a sort of responsibility of care for for the workers, uh, you know, mental health and work-life balance. I find that in, in Anglo-American uh, discussions, the focus is much more on personal resilience, which which is all about personal responsibility. You know, if you're too stressed, if you get exhausted at work, it's your fault because you allow yourself to get so stressed. So you need to work on your own resilience. So you need to eat more greens. You need to meditate. You need to do <laughs> yoga. It's all up to you. So I, th- I find that very interesting, the kind of responsibility question that is attached to, to the different cures.
0: Right. And so instead of saying, maybe I shouldn't get email after seven o'clock, Americans are like, well, I just need to meditate so I can handle those emails after seven o'clock. I mean, I mean, it's interesting because you see, you do see companies in America instituting these meditation programs, nap rooms, and we had a guest on the podcast talk about like the happiness industry, where he says, yeah, I mean, it looks like they're helping you out, and but like really, it's helping their bottom line, right? (laughs) Because they want you to be uh, well rested (laughs) and not stressed out, because that means you'll. more productive for them
1: it's all about enhancing productivity you know not really a concern about well-being it's about you know we want you to be able to keep on working
0: (laughs) (laughs) as long as you can so if you got to take a 20 minute nap we'll we're okay with that so what do you think is the big takeaway from this research project is like is, is exhaustion just some part of the human existence that we just have to we have to deal with
1: I, I absolutely think it is. I think exhaustion is is a you know is a wonderful sort of both end phenomenon in that it's timeless and ubiquitous, but it always puts on new clothes. So it's it's like an ancient beast that keeps appearing in new outfits. And I would say it hooks into you know really basic psychological anxieties about um, illness, the waning of our energy, when we die and when we when we grow old and ultimately it's about a fear of death you know losing energy is associated with a loss of control a loss of our health a loss of our ty- of our powers and you know we only become concerned about exhaustion when we do feel that our energies are on the wane and um, so it's about you know illness And the process of aging and fear of death. Um, But at the same time, what what I find so fascinating about exhaustion theories is that every age maps its own discontents onto the condition. So every age really projects whatever, whatever it wants to onto this sort of basic template and every age kind of reassigns responsibility and rethinks the you know mind body social nexus in a very unique and special way and i i have also found that exhaustion is of exhaustion theories are often a form of cultural criticism so people will will critique social developments with which they disagree so for example in the burnout debates you have a lot of people you know complaining about neoliberal, techno-capitalist developments that, that they don't like, and they say, these are the cause of our exhaustion. Or in the 19th century, you have people saying, you know, women becoming emancipated and joining the workforce is terrible, and it makes them exhausted. So exhaustion theories are often used as a sort of cultural weapon. You know, they're weaponized in the sense that they um, underpin very specific ideological agendas.
0: Well, Anna, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: My guest today is Anna Schaffner. She's the author of the book, Exhaustion. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also check out our show notes at aom.is slash exhaustion. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find thousands of in depth, well researched articles on just about anything personal finances, habit formation, how to be a better man, how to be a better family man, you name it. We've got it. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay, encouraging you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've learned into action.